Revelation chapter 1 begins with that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. I told you last week that my introduction was going to be one minute and that I wasn't going to be a liar, but I'm going to be a liar. So intro is a little longer this morning. So I just read those verses so I can pretend that I'm commenting on those verses as we study chapter 1. And here's the reality. So when you sit in the long arc of God's word, we're told in Genesis chapter 1 that there is this being that we call God. And all that he is created the heavens and the earth as an expression of himself, especially in the creation of man, male and female, in his image. We have that declaration that everything was good, but in chapter 3 of Genesis, we have the breaking happen. Because you, you have this declaration of here's this being who created everything, everything is good, he is in control, he's sovereign, this is all about him. And then in chapter 3, you have the lie begin, which the lie is always a twist on who God is. It's a twist on the things God has said, because whoever this being Satan is as a created being is in opposition to and rebellion against God. He hates God. He hates God's creation. He hates you. He hates me. And this is the reality of spiritual warfare. Now, when you sit in the long arc of the Bible, God has been constantly revealing himself through progressive revelation throughout time. When he, as you watch sin grow in humanity, and we're told that he's destroyed every single human being except eight through the flood in judgment, it's one, of those, it's one of those things that you sit in God's word and it's shocking how, just how violent of an action that was in judgment, in righteous judgment, in holiness, in love. And this is the same imagery that we're going to sit in in Revelation. So after the flood, you have humanity dispersing, sinning again, turning to idolatry, creating their own religions, their own governments. You watch it there at the Tower of Babel as God divides human beings for the purpose of limiting our sin. And then you have him choose one man out of idolatry. You have him choose Abraham. And the reason why I'm bringing this up, there are multiple covenants, multiple promises that God made with specifically through Abraham and through Abraham's descendants, so the nation of Israel, that as we sit in the prophecy of Revelation, we are watching God bring about the fulfillment of the promises that he made. So in Genesis chapter 12, you have this covenant with Abraham. In that covenant, God says, I will multiple times. It's an unconditional, eternal covenant. God is going to give to Abraham and his seed children, a nation, a people, He's going to give to them a land. He's going to give to them blessing. And anybody that participates in that blessing that he's giving to Abraham, those that are outside of the seed of Abraham, those that are outside the nation of Israel, us Gentiles, we're invited to come into that blessing. And ultimately, that blessing is coming through the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah. So you watch a nation, a people, a land being promised, blessing being promised, as you fast forward to the covenant that he made with Moses and the nation of Israel at that time, in Deuteronomy 28, in Deuter well, in Deuteronomy 28, in, the, in that second telling of what's going on, um, it's a conditional covenant, and it's a temporary covenant. God says, if you will 
then I will in the covenant that he made with Moses. And in that, there's a promise of blessing for obedience to God's law, and there is a promise of cursing for disobedience to God's law. It's conditional. It was temporary. We are told in the New Testament that the Mosaic covenant was given to guard the nation of Israel, to guard humanity for the promised Messiah who was coming. And when Jesus came and he died for sins, it's now stepping into the new covenant, which we'll get to in a minute. And Deuteronomy 30 is another unconditional covenant, which is dealing with the land of Canaan. So the land of Israel today, where again, God is promising a perpetual, unending title of not only possession, but also inheritance to the seed of Abraham. You fast forward that and you sit with David and the promises that God made to David. Further revelation, promising to David a throne, a king, and a kingdom. So that's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, if you want to go back and study that. The next one is the new covenant. This is what we really want to sit in as we follow Jesus as our Savior, as the one who sacrificed himself for our sins. This sacrifice, the shedding of the blood, is enabling what was promised in Jeremiah 31 for you and I to be recreated, to be new, to be granted a new heart. And this is where, uh, so I'm going, I'm going to attempt to be sober and keep my emotions in check because as we sit in Revelation, it is both wonderful and miserable at the same time. And the misery is the separation of human beings who are in opposition to God. The wonder is the gathering in of human beings who come to this God who created the heavens and the earth through his son, Jesus. It's wonderful. So I want to ask you this question. And if you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down. And then I want you to go back and I want you to meditate on this. Who is Jesus? Just your own definitions, as you know him. And then after you sit and you meditate on that and you write those definitions down, now you need to ask yourself the question, does your life image him? Because as we sit in the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's him unveiling himself. This is Jesus telling us who he is. As we sit in Revelation, it is, we have a warning before us that we need to make sure the Jesus we believe in is the Jesus that is true as he has revealed himself. So often we sit in a culture where there are many Jesuses. There are many um, redefinitions, rebranding of who he is that's in contrast to who he revealed himself to be. And I'm sitting in this just because current context, so we're going to name a name for those of you who know Ravi Zacharias. This is a, 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 a man whose ministry is the largest apologetic ministry in the world. He spent his career, his ministry service, traveling through the world, pulling in other partners and other speakers, participating in this, 
that go to colleges, that go to congregations, that go to all different kinds of spheres arguing for Jesus. In contrast, in, in against, against all the falsehoods about the nature and character of God. I just found out this morning, I didn't know this, you know, he died, you know, seven, eight months ago, something like that. Uh, you know, Vice President of the United States of America spoke at his funeral. So if we want to elevate a Christian star, which we do and we need to have cautious in, caution in, because um, it's easy to elevate those that we define as successful. Um, Ravi would be one of those guys that was at the top of the list. Since his death, there were subsequent allegations in regards to who he was off the platform, behind the scenes. Um, those allegations are not just rumor. His ministry, which you know, his wife was on the board of, his daughter is the CEO of and was chairman of the board. Um, they hired an outside law firm to investigate so that they could have integrity in that investigation. And they promised to, you know, their donors and the public that they would release those findings. Well, those findings were released this week. And I'm giving this long-winded um, description to, we were talking about this in prayer this morning. Um, I just read the articles about the information. Gordon was actually reading the document from the ministry that talks about it in depth, and he couldn't finish it because it was so offensive. And this is the warning. If Ravi can be this Christian star and live a double life, what about me? You know, I don't, I don't, this isn't to pick up stones and hurl it at another individual. But either you sit in the testimony of what he had going beyond, behind the scenes. I don't know his judgment, but I can very easily hear the words spoken to him of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. It is an absolute miserable thought. It's an absolute miserable testimony to what he had going on behind the scenes. And then my begging of God, God, I, that's, that's always been the most fearful passage in God's word to me. Lord, Lord, I did all of these things for your namesake. And hear the words, no, you didn't. You knew me in theory. Ravi would very easily pass a doctrinal exam. His behavior didn't. So there was, there's a disconnect. So as we sit in the new covenant where God promises to give us a new heart, all of us sit in the, we've all been stupid. We've all been rebellious. We've all held on to false ideas. And the warning is there, there's a difference between David who was caught in his adultery and in murder and when he was confronted with it. You can go sit in Psalm 51 and you can see his repentance. God, my sin is always before me. Wash me. Cleanse me. Restore me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Create 
make a new heart in me according to your promise. Make me new, Lord. As we sit in that end goal of Revelation that we read last week, it's that fulfillment of the promise. There is a newness coming. And we're all in this fight together. But the the caution is, and the, the question is, is we need to make sure that our Jesus is not an idol. That our Jesus is him. In truth, and all of his glory, and all of his attributes. So as we sit in Revelation 1 this morning, I picked up Asher from, from track this, this week. He told me that he read Revelation chapter 1 a couple times while he was at school. So I started quizzing him on, did you understand it? Did you understand the imagery? What, what do you think this means? What do you think that means? As a 17-year-old, he was able to spot on, just say, this, this is what I think that this means in regards to Jesus revealing himself. I had to give a little bit of clarity and a little bit of expansion. But the imagery that's given, it's not hard. And we can be in agreement. But the prayer today and the prayer for the rest of our lives is God help me. God help me not to play a game. Help me not to be in agreement with your word, in agreement with your kids on Sunday and then leave in the afternoon and just go do what I want. And we have these constant warnings in the word of God. I want to camp on this because it's just, not only would those words be the most miserable thing for me to hear, I think they're the most miserable thing for any other human being to hear, and I don't want any of you to hear those words come out of your Savior's mouth. Depart from me, I never knew you. I want you to hear Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And the truth of that is a constant daily submission of self to who he is, to his word, to his truth, not to somebody else's words, not to somebody else's opinion. You know when you're playing games. You know when you're hiding. You know when you're twisting. You know when you're making excuses. And if you don't know that, we're praying that the Holy Spirit would reveal those things to you daily. Now, as we sit in this text, there's, there's you know, some, for some, there's, there's new. Like, you can't know what you don't know. So in the process of growing in our relationship with the Lord, he, in, in our own walk, progressively reveals his nature and his character to us. And the... The encouragement is to receive him and all that he is. The discouragement is when you're presented with the truth of who Jesus is, not to be in that position of, eh, or, no, I don't think so. And again, a lot of our culture stands in opposition to who our God has revealed himself to be. They'll take the pieces that they like, but the rest of them, they say, nope, And the most dangerous heart really is the heart that, it's that lukewarm heart that just says, meh, I got all of Jesus I want. I'm good. Meh. So, Revelation. The unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God the Father gave him, Jesus, to show his servants. You should underline or circle or write something next to that word as a servant of God. 
as we understand who he is and who we are to him, our life is in service to him. He is the master and we are the slave. And it's not a master who abuses his servants. It's a master who loves his servants and all that we get to participate with him in. But that reality, do you know that you were his servant? And what is he showing? He's not only showing things about himself, but he's showing things which must shortly take place. This idea of shortly, if you're taking notes again, Luke chapter 18 and uh, Luke 18, 8 and Romans chapter 16, verse 20, the same word is used. And I'm bringing this up because uh, as we sit in interpreting Revelation, shortly ought to mean, hey, it's going to happen really quick. Um, but even in those two passages that I just mentioned, shortly doesn't mean Shortly. One of, one of them in Romans 16, Satan is shortly going to be crushed under your feet. Satan crushed under our feet yet? Well, in theology, there is a spiritual truth to that, absolutely. However, it's very clear that Satan is unleashed today, and he is very active in his schemes, where we do have victory in Jesus over him for sure, but is he crushed fully? Not yet. It's coming in the future. So these things which shortly must take place, there's one idea that these things all happened immediately after this prophecy was given in history, and we're sitting in it from this vantage point that much of what is being spoken is in the future. These things which must shortly uh, take place. So he sent, and he signified, very clearly gave clear indications of the truth of this and what's going to happen by his angel to his servant, John. John, whose testimony of his life, that John bore witness, the active activity of his life, of the word of God, and the testimony of who Jesus Christ is. This is what John was doing his entire life to all the things that he saw. Specific blessing mentioned. Blessed is he... And she, who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things that are written in it, for the time is near. And in the introduction this morning, there is definitely an emphasis upon keeping, guarding, observing. Not just hearing, not just reading, not just being in agreement with, but God... I need that new heart. I need that new mind. I need to be transformed into your image and your image alone every day. The time is near. The season is near. It's always near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him. This is the Father. Look at the definition, who is and who was and who is to come. We pause here because this is a repetitious definition of God revealing his nature and character to humanity. He gave this name Yahweh, I am the self-existent one to Moses. God is the one who is, is dealing with the reality of his present. 
He is the one who was. He has always been. He is the one who is to come, always will be coming, past, present, and future. God's self-existence and God's eternity. Not only grace and peace from God the Father, but also from the seven spirits which are before his throne. If you listen, there's, there's weird ideas and how people will translate this idea of the seven spirits. But if we use the word of God to give us the definition for what's being described in Isaiah chapter 11, chapter 1 says that there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. This is in regards to Jesus as Messiah. Verse 2 of Isaiah 11 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That's one. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So this idea of sevens we're going to see, I think, it's over 40 times in the book of Revelation. Seven is the number of completion in the Bible. It's the number of perfection. Here it's being used as a description of the Holy Spirit. And again, jumping back into Isaiah to give us clarity on parts of what's being discussed. Because there is definitely a mystery in this relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. Verse 5 of Revelation 1 says, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So, again, in self-revelation of who Jesus is as Christ, he is the faithful witness. All that he has spoken about God is faithful. It's true. It's trustworthy. What he has said about himself, the spirit, what he said about humanity, what he said about past, present, and future, Jesus' testimony is faithful. He is the firstborn from the dead. We'll come back to that in a minute. And he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. So I know that we'd all stand in that in agreement, but do you agree with that statement practically? Do you believe that, the, that Jesus is the ruler over Putin? Over all the different leaders of the world, he is ruler. Not just today, not just in the future, but it has always been. He has given us much space and much freedom to sin. We have watched rulers do much damage to humanity. But it's a quick, there's quick case studies that you can sit in. Was God the ruler over Pharaoh? Was God the ruler over Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus? Leaders that are not part of the nation of Israel, but leaders of other nations. Absolutely. And the reality, his rule is over all of the kings of the earth. To him, so from him is grace and peace. To him, again, look at these other definitions. He loved us. He washed us. From our sins in his own blood. 
That is a grotesque image. However, the image is pointing to his sacrificial death in our place. That that is what provides our cleansing, our washing, our purity, our holiness from him, our redemption is sourced from him. He made us, and this, is, uh, this has become one of my favorite words. It's used almost 600 times in the New Testament, but this is where the, his workmanship, this is what he does. He has made us. Mine says kings and priests. The language is probably he made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father, so as a kingdom, again, this is the area of his authority. You sit in the imagery of Jesus as king. This is his position. This is his title. This is an attribute of him. He is seated on a throne, which is an object that describes his authority and his power. His kingdom is that which he rules over as sovereign. He has made us as believers in him a kingdom. We are that which he rules over as sovereign. And priests. A priest is that individual that is supposed to stand in the gap between a human being and God interceding. And now each one of us, we have that direct relationship with our Father through Jesus as our high priest. But he has made all of us, male and female, priests to his God and Father. To Jesus be glory and dominion forever and ever. And the word amen means truth. So whenever we amen each other, you amen something, what you're really shouting, truth, that is true. So be it. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with clouds. Quickly, if you can, turn back to Daniel chapter 7. And this is where we're going to use Old Testament to define imagery. Daniel 7. And some of this imagery is going to play in later on in just a minute. So this is why we want to read this. Daniel 7, 9 says, I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. God Almighty the Father. His garment was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Jump down to verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. When Jesus quoted this to the religious leaders as he was being falsely accused, this is when the high priest tore his garment when Jesus claimed that this was him and said, blasphemy. And use that as the reason for his execution. It says, he came to the ancient of days. They brought him near before him, to him. So to Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So back in Revelation, when it says, Behold, see, he is coming with clouds. Daniel 7 provides that imagery. Acts chapter 1 also, as they watched Jesus ascend into heavens and the clouds receive him, the angels told the disciples he's going to come back in like manner. And when we hit Revelation 19, you can go read it yourself, we watch this event happen. Every eye will see him. And that every eye is every. Every single eye that God has created will see this event. And he clarifies this, even they who pierced him. So even those that have been dead for centuries, the dead will see him coming. The living will see him coming. This is a moment when all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, truth. This is what I say when Revelation, this entire prophecy, it is absolutely miserable in so many facets. The world, when Jesus comes back, the nations are going to mourn. And not just some flippant kind of mourning, but a wailing. That moment of, it's like being a stupid drunk and then immediately coming into truth and reality, an awake and alert mind, and says, oh, no. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. So the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So clarifies the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This word Almighty is only used one time outside of Revelation in the New Testament. It's picked up from an Old Testament word. This is God is all-powerful is what this word is. Now I have a question. My translation has all the words in red, so it's giving us the interpretation that these words are Jesus speaking. So are these the words of Jesus, or are these the words of God the Father? Yes. Take your pick. But why? I mean, this is, this is what's difficult in the Word of God, and this is the reality. We believe in a triune God, a God who has manifested himself in three persons in perfect unity, as Father, Son, and Spirit. Our brains melt. We can't figure this out. But it's one of those things we know that Jesus is the Almighty God based upon definitions that are given for him, based upon the words that come out of his mouth, and based upon the worship that he receives. So even in this verse, in verse 8, take your pick. I don't care if you say that that's the Father saying it or that's the Son saying it because we're going to very clearly get Jesus saying those same words in just a minute. So verse 9 says, I, John. Think about who John is. He is defined as a disciple. He calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. He is not a disciple of man. He is a learner of Jesus. 
Not being discipled by other men and other women. Discipled by his shepherd, by his rabbi, by his teacher. He was a disciple of Jesus. You're not to be a disciple of a doctrine. You are not to be the disciple of another man or another woman or another idea. You are not to be discipled by another man or another woman or another teaching. You follow Jesus. You learn from him. You learn from people who love him and imitate him. Absolutely. But you have, through faith in Jesus, you have the Spirit of God who is your teacher, who is your helper. John was a disciple. He was an apostle. He was commissioned and sent by Jesus. Called himself an elder in the other letters that we read through. Here he's saying, I'm your brother. I'm your companion. And this word for companion, it's a couple of Greek words. One's koinonia, where we get our fellowship, this participation and sharing in one another's life. And he uses this prefix in regards to together. together. I am your companion in what? Tribulation, oppression, suffering, squeezing, and kingdom, his kingdom, and patience. The endurance that is demanded and necessary and supplied by Jesus himself. My prayer is that each one of us endures. I just, I keep going back to just, you know, further revelation of, of that prior ministry, but I've had an outstanding prayer before God that I ask him continually is that I would never become bored with him. I say the same thing every week. As we teach through the Bible, it doesn't matter what passage we're in. Who's it about? Just say Jesus. Jesus is always the answer. There's different subject matters. There's different applications of how we apply that relationship. But ultimately, when I, when I just think about what I communicate every single week, what am I saying? Here's who God has revealed himself to be in the circumstances and situation, and he is calling you to respond to him favorably. Submit to him, bend the knee to him, turn away from your sins, repent, turn away from everything else. You follow him. And if you do, blessings. If you don't, cursings. Same thing every week, right? So God, may that never get boring. May I never, may I never, we just sang about his greatness. It's really easy to say, how great is our God? Sing with me. How great is our God? And we can just parrot and mouth. And I have no connection. That's why I said the question, how great is God? Meh. Or, may he always take our breath away. John was on the island of, that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. It says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. This isn't John was having a super holy Sunday. The, the seeming right interpretation of what John is saying here, that he has been taken out to the physical and he is in the spirit. And on the spirit, in being in the spirit, he is being given a vision of the future day of the Lord. 
So the Lord's Day, it's not seen as a reference to Sunday, the first day of the week when Jesus resurrected from the dead. Everything that he is being given in regards to the future things to come is dealing with the day of the Lord. And again, you sit in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord that comes up over and over and over again. It is a miserable day for humanity. At the same time, it's a joyous day for those that are one with him. In the spirit on the Lord day, and I heard behind me a loud voice. For those of you who like amplified music, I, my, my brain just locks into the voice that he heard left a ringing in his ear. As of a trumpet saying, and here this is clearly Jesus, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it very specific commands to the seven churches which are in Asia. We'll start dealing with these next week to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Verse 12, I turned to see, and this is what, this is what I want to make sure that the Jesus that you believe in, the Jesus that is being revealed here, and the Jesus that John encountered, because John didn't turn around and say, Jesus, how you doing? He falls down as though he was dead at who he saw. And the only way he was enabled empowered to stand in the presence of Jesus is because Jesus placed his right hand on him, told him not to be afraid. But look at the imagery. I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and having turned, so again, I mean, this is where you kind of have to close your eyes and, and have an imagination. Your ears are ringing. You hear this proclamation. You know it is God. And you are extremely curious and you are extremely fearful of being able to turn around and glance. And the first thing that he sees is he sees lampstands. Jesus in a moment is going to define these lampstands as the churches. Jesus is in our midst. But when John turns around, he sees this figure in the midst of these lampstands. And what does a lampstand do? Shines. What are we supposed to do as the church, as the called out ones? Shine. You have been saved out of darkness. And he has elevated you and placed you on a stand to image his light. So when John turns around, he sees the light of the churches, not their source, but reflecting Jesus himself. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one, like the Son of Man, he's clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. So why is Jesus presenting this image of a garment? More than likely, it's that imagery of a priest. You look when Moses, or when God gives Moses the instruction to build a tabernacle and all of its furniture and the imagery that's associated with it, he was commanded to clothe the priests in certain garments. So this imagery that he is clothed in this garment more than likely is that image of Jesus as priest. 
One of those things is this, it's a, a belt, a sash that was supposed to, a girdle that was supposed to go around the waist. I have no idea why Jesus has his belt wrapped around his chest, but in that imagery, that's where his belt is placed. And there's different, people get in weird ideas, and when I sit there and read it, I just go, huh, maybe, but there's no real clear explanation to why it's around his chest. Verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool. We just read Daniel 7, the imagery of God the Father. What was his hair like? What was the garment like? It's white and shining. Again, there's a direct connection that who John is looking at is this being that revealed himself all throughout Scripture, of course, but specifically in Daniel's prophecy. There's continual threads back here. But that image, what, uh, what does that say? It talks about purity. It talks about age. Again, calling God the ancient of days. He is eternal. He is pure. He is wise. Is all of this imagery as white as snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. He sees through all the junk. And at his gaze, everything burns away, and what remains is what is true. His feet are like fine brass. Brass in the Old Testament is always associated with sacrifice, with redemption. The idea his feet are like brass, as if refined in a furnace. He is pure, without blemish. Without an impurities, his voice again is the sound of many waters. He has in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Revelation 19, 15 tells us what this sword does. When Jesus returns, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And on his robe and on his thigh... A name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So not only do you have imagery in chapter 1 that Jesus is God, you have imagery that Jesus is priest, you have imagery that Jesus is judge. And these are all images that are going to carry forward through all of this prophecy. His countenance, back in chapter 1, verse 16, the rest of verse 16, his countenance is like the sun shining in its strength. And again, you just you sit, and as John turns around, this is who he sees. And then what happens? And when I saw, I fell at his feet as dead. Jesus lays his hand on John, and he says to John, And he says this to each one of us who come to him in spirit and in truth. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he 
who lives present. I did something. I was dead. The sacrifice. And behold, see it, I am alive forevermore. I am he who is to come. And what does he say? Truth. I have the keys of Hades and of death. Literally, he has the authority to lock somebody away and to free somebody from Hades and death. Hades being the place, death being even personified in much of the Bible. Ultimately defined as separation from God. The command to write the things which you have seen. What did John just see? Talking about the past, same imagery that keeps coming up, or same idea. Write the things which are the present and the things which will take place after this, the future. We'll look at that as we begin next week as an outline for Revelation because it seems to outline it very well. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. We'll stand in that next week also. More than likely, the pastor of the church, that individual who's being given this prophecy to turn around and communicate it to the congregation is the idea. And the seven lampstands, which you saw are the seven churches. Now, is that your Jesus? It's my Jesus. I agree with that. I believe that. I hope in that. But that the, the daily prayer is God, if I'm off, if I'm holding on to an idea of you, if I'm holding on to a thought that is in opposition to you, if I am participating in a behavior, an excuse saying, I'm okay, God's gracious, be warned. I presented you this morning with a very real life to warn you from playing any kind of religious game. There is a God who created you. There is a God who loves you. He is great and he is wonderful. This God, we are told we are supposed to image him, to reflect him, to be in his likeness. We are incapable of pressing ourselves into that mold and into that image and we are promised that that is what he does for us. Every single one of us fights against the process because it hurts. Sometimes we feel like God is withholding pleasure from us. But when we ask Him, we always end with, not by my will but may your will be done. Surrender to God today. 
hold up your white flag and say, I'm done fighting against you. I'm done living for me, for the pursuit and pleasures of others or self. I stand in agreement with your word, but I can't, Lord. I don't find the strength. I don't find the consistency. I don't find, I don't find the power in me. But you promise to make me new. And not just in the future, but right now. So Lord, I know that you're present. I know that you see with those eyes like a flame of fire. All the excuses burn away. You give us the imagery of a refiner's fire, Lord, as though our lives are placed into this cauldron. And we're placed into the heat of trials so that all that is not of you, all those things that are impure, Lord, that they could be refined out of us and skimmed off the top. And what is left, Lord, would be your image as you look into us. Lord, I'm asking, I'm giving you the permission in my life to prevent me from stupid. I ask that you divinely interfere in my life anytime and every time I'm starting to wander to aim at something else where the enemy's coming in and he's whispering his lies and he's tempting me to turn away from you. He's tempting me to reject you. That you would be there in your power, in your truth, in your protection, in your redeeming power, in your resurrection power. That you would enable me, Lord, to love you as you deserve. God help us.